start this morning by asking you a question. And this isn't something that I want you to shout the answer back to me. This is something I just want you to think to yourself. And I'm going to be straight up with you. This is a difficult question. And so I want you to try and formulate an answer. I really want you to try. But if you can't, don't feel bad and don't feel ill-equipped. Because today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this question. We're going to dig into the scriptures to see how we can answer that question. And then we're going to see how we can apply the answer to our lives. So here's the question. Really think about this. What if we had the kind of faith that trusted completely in God even if he didn't come through. So let me phrase it a little bit differently for you. What if we, as followers of Christ, had the kind of faith that trusted God even if we thought he wasn't going to come through? You see, because ultimately God comes through in every aspect of our lives, but sometimes when we're going through the, the deep, dark parts of life, the parts no one likes to talk about, and we want a quick answer as to why we're going through those things, sometimes God gives a quick answer, but sometimes we're made to wait, and we don't find out until years later on the answer. And it can really take a toll on your faith when you're constantly wondering, what is God doing? So let me ask you again, what if we had the kind of faith that trusted God, even if we thought he had forgotten us, even if we thought he wasn't answering us anymore, even if we thought he wasn't going to come through? Now, you see, to answer this question, we have to generally have an understanding of what faith is. So that we're kind of all on the same page, you have to know what faith is to know how to have a certain kind of faith. And if you were to look up in the scriptures a definition for the word faith, probably the best definition comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So we're confident in the things we hope for from God because we know God gives us hope. We're confident in the hope that he gives. But we're assured that even if we can't see what he's doing, God is still working both for our benefit and for his glory. We're confident in the things we hope for, but we're assured that even if we can't see God working, he is still working for our good. And that's a great definition. But if you were to look up in a Bible dictionary what the definition of faith is, you would probably get this really long answer. It would be a good answer, but it would be really wordy. And if we're honest, we'd probably stop reading it about halfway through. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a definition for the word faith that, that has everything in it about faith you need to know, but in more of a bite-sized, wrapped-up portion you can take home with you. And here it is, very simply. Faith is believing that something is true, and then committing your life to it. Very simply, believing something is true and committing your life to it. So how does that work in terms of God? So we believe what we read in the inspired true word of God. We believe it to be true. We see that he is just as active today as he was here. And we believe that it is true. But then we commit our lives to it. And that's an interesting part of this, isn't it? Because we really don't, it's hard to commit your life to something, especially when you're talking about in terms of faith. So how do I commit my life to truth. You commit your life to it by committing your life to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You recognize you're a sinner. You're in need of a Savior. You hear the gospel. You realize that what Jesus Christ has done for you, you realize that his blood on the cross has covered both your past and future sins, that after three days in the grave, he rose again. You repent of your sins. Repent just means to change. You change your attitude. I was going down this path, and I'm not any longer. Now I'm going down the path God wants me to go towards Jesus. Then you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You follow that with the obedience of baptism, and then you continually live your life as close to living like Jesus as possible. 
as close as possible. Why? Because we're not perfect. You believe that these words are true and you commit your life to them by committing your life to the Son. And I think generally in here, by and large, we would say that we have a strong faith in God. I think if we took a poll in here, we would say, most of us would be like, yeah, I've got a strong faith in God. But the thing is, we typically state that when things are going really well in our lives. When things are going really well, just honestly, it's easier to proclaim a strong faith in God when you're on the mountaintops as opposed to when you're in the valley. When things are going really well in your life, it's really easy to say, yes, God, I know you're in full control. I know this is in your hands. But the question then becomes, do we have the same type of faith in the valley that we do on the mountaintop? Now, if you talk to veteran Christians, people who've walked through the valleys and gone to the mountaintops with God their entire life, if you talk to veteran Christians, they're probably going to say yes. I have grown my faith in God to the point through seeing how faithful he is to me. I can honestly say that my faith is the same when I'm in the bad times as I am in the good times. But if we were to take a poll of new Christians, they would probably, if they were being really transparent, would probably say no. Even though it should be, my faith when I'm down here is not the same as it should be when I'm up here. And why do we do that? You know, it, it, when we're on the mountaintop, it's easy because we, and the minute we're met, with the t- it's crazy how quick we change. When we're on the mountaintop, it's easy to profess a faith in God. But the minute that we're met with a temptation or a trial or a difficult time in our life, we go from this trusting God completely mindset to the, well, God will be there in case I need him mindset. Why do we switch so quickly? It's because we want quick answers. When you're going through a difficult time and you want to know why you're going through it or what you're going to learn through it, you want a quick answer. I'm that way. When I'm going through a difficult time in my life, I want an answer as to why that's happening or what I may gain from that experience. But when we have to wait on God, when we get to the point where, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? And he's delaying his answer, not to see a squirm, but because he wants to teach us something through that. When we don't get a quick answer from God, we switch from faith in Jesus to faith in Mises. We go immediately from Our faith in God, trusting God completely to, I'm going to handle this. God, you're right there if I need you, but I got this. And if you're anything like me, and you've done that in your life, you've switched your faith from totally in God to somewhat in God, you only make things worse for yourself when you try to fix it. I could probably stand up here and do an entire talk on things in my life that I've tried to fix that I've made worse. Why do we want quick answers? Because we live in a society of quick answers. You think about it. You type something into Google. If you've got good connection you're going to get an answer in a second. You send someone a text, and assuming they've got their phone, you're going to get an answer in a minute. You order something from Amazon, you're going to get it probably the next day or soon after. You see, we live in a society that works in terms of seconds, minutes, and hours, but we serve a God who sometimes works in terms of days, months, and years. And when we don't get a quick answer, now sometimes God answers quickly, don't misunderstand me, but when we don't get a quick answer, we seek to rely on ourselves and our faith waivers. You see, we must have the kind of faith that trusts God completely no matter what he is doing. When things in life are going well, we hold fast to our Lord because we know he's in complete control. When things are going wrong, we hold on tighter to our Lord because no matter the outcome of the situation, we know that God is working and has an outcome that is far better than anything we could have come up with on our own. Here's another question for you. What if we had the kind of faith to stand in the fire, the hard times of life, 
when your faith is being tested, when your faith is put to the flame, maybe you've heard it said that way. What if we had the faith to stand in the fire and not care to get burned? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, I encourage you to grab one of those hardback black ones because I actually want you to see this today. We're in Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be spending all of our time in Daniel 3. There'll be a couple verses here or there, but by and large, this sermon is going to take place all in Daniel 3. And if you've never read Daniel chapter 3, I strongly encourage you to do so because it is a beautiful passage of Scripture. And the level of faith that is shown in Daniel 3 is unbelievable. And we're going to try and relate that kind of faith to ourselves today. In Daniel chapter 3, three men defy a king to proclaim the king. And in doing so, they shake the foundations of what it really means to have a faithful relationship with God. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to set up what happens prior to Daniel chapter 3. Because you have to know this stuff to understand the magnitude of what happens in the passage we're going to read. And so here's what happens up to the passage we're getting ready to read. At this time in Israelite history, Israel has kind of turned its back on God. Now that's not, that, but by no means everybody turned their back on God. That, that doesn't mean everybody. But Israel had had a string of really, really bad kings who were power hungry and relied on themselves. And so a lot of the people had began to shift their faith, like what we were just talking about. And at this time, the Israelite king, or the king of Judah, his name is Zedekiah. It's a fun name to say. And he is no different from these other kings. There's a prophet in Jerusalem at this time. His name is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is he's known as the weeping prophet, and he is just pleading with the people and with the king to repent, the, remember the attitude, to change your attitude, to repent of their sinful lives and turn back to God or bad things were going to happen. He's like, guys, repent, repent, and all will be made well and God will save you from this coming situation. And they don't. And things do get bad. And things get bad quickly. There's a Middle Eastern nation called Babylon. And Babylon is coming, and Babylon is coming quickly. Babylon has an army, a massive army, headed right towards Jerusalem. And they camp themselves right outside the city walls for 18 months. And they sit there. You've got to think of the psychology of what that is. Plus, the trapped Israelites start to starve. Food can't leave, food can't come in. And King Zedekiah brings Jeremiah, and I'm paraphrasing this, he brings Jeremiah in he says, prophet, look, are you not going to speak to God for us right now? I mean, you wrote, repent, and all will be made well, and God will save us from the situation. And Jeremiah says, Zed, I have been telling you all that for years. Nothing has changed. Not a thing. You guys have not once turned back to God. Only when things got worse did you turn back. You seem to only act as if you need God when things get bad. Then look out the window. And at the wind, you know, as you can see, the ancient sources, this is not a biblical fact, but ancient sources say that there were so many Babylonian soldiers, it looked like an ocean. He says, look out the window, Zed. You're too late. And the Babylonian soldiers invade Jerusalem. They take everything. They just help themselves. They burn the temple to the ground and they take hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of 
people in exile 500 miles east back to Babylon. Four of these men that they're taking back are somewhat nobility from the family line of David, and their names are Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You probably know those last three men by their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, when they were taken to Babylon and they were made to work for the Babylonians, their names were changed. And so we'll just refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so there's no confusion. And these guys, their job was to counsel the king, his name's Nebuchadnezzar, their job is to counsel the king in all matters regarding wisdom. In other words, they are interpreting his dreams for him. And so the king keeps having this recurring dream over and over and over again. He's having this dream. And the dream is this. Very briefly, the dream is this. He sees a big statue of a man made of different types of metal, the head of which is gold. At the end of the dream, a big rock comes in and smashes the statue to pieces. And that's his dream. None of the Babylonian advisors can answer what this dream means. But they're calling upon their pagan gods. They don't worship at all the one true God that we worship. But Daniel and his three friends do. And calling upon the wisdom of the God we serve, they are able to interpret the king's dream. And the king's dream means this. The different types of metal in the statue represent different kingdoms. Your kingdom is the greatest, the head of which is gold. The rock that comes in and smashes it to pieces is the kingdom of God. One day God will come and wipe out all world kingdoms and set up his own kingdom over the world. You've got to think, you're a foreign captive working in the court of the king, and you just told the king his dream means that you're going to be destroyed by God. It's a gutsy, gutsy move. But you know what? I'm not really sure of Nebuchadnezzar's immediate reaction to it, but I know he holds the men in somewhat of a high regard because of their willingness to do this, their willingness to be bold. But you see, these men were in a little bit of a different position. They're working in the personal court of the king. Yeah, they'd much rather be back home in Jerusalem, but they're not suffering as badly as some of their other Israelite comrades. But their faith is getting ready to be tested beyond just about what we can comprehend. See, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to establish himself as a total ruler. That means he wanted to be in charge of religious and political things. And he does this by doing this. He establishes his rule. He has everybody meet in a big open field, if you will. At the end of the field is a big statue. We don't know what the statue was, but we do know from the scriptures that it is 60 cubits high by 6 feet wide. In other words, that's 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. So you can't miss this thing. And the order was this. Everyone in Babylon, both the actual Babylonians and the captured Jews, are to bow down and worship the statue or be thrown into a fiery furnace. Let me kind of boil that down you worship or we'll kill you immediately now here's the thing for those who were not close followers of god that's a no-brainer but for those who were true followers of god this was something they would not and just could not do because to bow to the statue would be to break two of god's commandments shall not worship false idols shall not create for yourself a graven image and have you have no other gods before me and so this is something they just can't do and the order was this, and when the trumpets sound a long blast, everybody bow down. That was it. When you hear the trumpet sound, everybody bow. The trumpets sound, and everybody bows, except these three men. We don't really know what Daniel was doing. He's not mentioned in the account. Everybody bows except these three men. And the king's advisors, or the king's court, sees that these three men didn't bow. 
And you've got to think, they would have stood out. Okay, because when they bowed, it wasn't just this. Okay, it was knees to ground, forehead to ground as well. So if everyone in the whole plane is knees to ground, forehead to ground, and you've got three other guys like this, they're going to be easy to spot. This is where the testing of their faith comes in. The advisors say, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, those three guys that work with you, you know, the guys that interpreted your dream that you wanted to work in your personal counsel, yeah, they're not obeying you. And Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. But remember, because he holds the men in high regard, he allows them the chance to explain themselves. Anybody else would have been killed immediately. This guy allows them to explain. And so, he says, all right, you guys, What's going on? I'm going to give you a chance to explain yourself. And if you, but keep in mind, if you don't bow, you're going to be thrown into the furnace. He gives them a chance to explain themselves, but he continually reminds them of what will happen to them. And their response to Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most beautiful things I've found. It's one of my favorite statements of faith in the whole Bible, definitely the Old Testament. There are others for sure, but this is one of my favorites. What we're getting ready to read is the men's response, their faithful response, and their answer for why they didn't bow to the statue. Listen to this, Daniel 3, 16 to 18. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Did you take note of the courage of the men? They take his threat of the furnace head on and state that no matter what the king may throw at them, their God would deliver them from it. And you know what? That is an incredible statement of faith. And that's a statement of faith we probably all should aspire to have. My God can, deliver, can and will deliver me from anything. When you read scripture, it's good to put yourself into the account that you're reading. Put yourself in their position because it makes it come alive for you. And if we put ourselves into the position of the three men, we probably can identify with their first statement. We probably can identify with the fact, yes, my God can and will deliver me from anything. I have the faith and the hope and I'm assured that he can deliver me from anything. That's a strong statement of faith and we probably can identify with it. But you know what? It's not even close to being one of the greatest statements of faith in the whole Bible. Verse 18 says that. Would you look with me at verse 18? It says, Our God will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And at verse 18, But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. You see, the men understood that nothing in all creation was worth serving or worshiping outside the one true God. And their faith was such that they would have trusted completely in God whether he saved them from the fire or not. Now that is a level of faith. I'm trusting God completely whether or not he delivers me from this thing because I know how good he is. And I know his plan is far better than anything I could think on my own. Even if he does not. How many times have I, 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 when I was reading this this week, I'm like, have I ever said that in my life? Have I ever once stated, God, I'm in a difficult time. I need you to get me through this. But even if you don't, I know you're still good. And I felt completely convicted because I'd been completely selfish. 
My prayers have been, God, get me out of this. God, get me out of this. Hey, God, get me out of this. And at no point did I ever stop to consider, God, you are good. You are good and you are faithful to me and you give me so much even though I can't give you hardly anything. I need you to get me out of this. But even if you don't, I'm still going to trust you. I still know you're good. I'm still going to follow you. It's just mind-blowing, that statement of faith. You see, obeying God was more important than life to these men. And even if God chose not to deliver them from their situation, they still would have obeyed Him. You see, that level of faith is extraordinary, but understand this, reaching it can take a while. So my point is, and we'll get to this here in a second, but my point is, if you are at a point in your life where you don't have that even if mindset, I'm still working on it. If you're to that point where you don't have that even if mindset, don't worry. And don't feel like you've been bad or that God has abandoned you or that you've done something wrong. God is still working. He's working to get you to that point. See, one has to go through the valleys with God to experience the mountaintops. Wouldn't you agree? If you get to the mountaintops and the good parts of life, it's normally after you've gone through something with God. Because the thing is, when you reach the mountaintop, you're able to look back into the valley that God brought you through, not so that you can live there, not so that you can live in your past, but so that you can look back and say, wow, if God brought me through that and brought me here, He can bring me through anything else. But you have to walk through those valleys with God to experience the goodness at the top of those mountains. See, faith is built and tested regularly in a relationship with God. If you, if you become a new Christian and your faith is being tested by God, and you'll know when that happens, believe me. When your faith is being tested, it's not, so that God, it's not because God is bored and He wants to see you squirm a little bit. That's not it at all. It's because God is working in you, reshaping you, stretching you beyond your boundaries so that He can mold you into the eventual image of His Son. It's not meaningless. When you're going through difficulty in life, it's not, so that, it's not because God is having fun with you, and it's not meaningless. You always learn something from those experiences. You see, God desires us to have that level of faith. I think we would agree that the, the faith that the men displayed, even if He does not, we're still going to have faith in Him. Of course God wants you to have that kind of faith. But God, I think God also knows that it takes a while to get there not always the case it depends on the person but it takes a while to get there what God does want is for us to walk with him daily and to experience his faithfulness on a daily basis he, he's going to get you to the point of even if God doesn't take this from me even if God doesn't deliver me from this I'm still going to be faithful to him he's, he of course he wants you to have that mindset but what he wants is for you to walk with him daily and experience his faithfulness on a daily basis. And in doing that, in walking hand in hand with God through life, daily feasting in his word, daily going to him in prayer, understanding that he's working in all instances, will get you to the even if mindset. So how do we develop it? You say, Justin, if, if God does the shaping and the molding, what am I supposed to do? I'll be honest, when it comes to strengthening faith, 
There's not a whole lot we can do but prepare ourselves to have our faith strengthened, to prepare ourselves for when our faith is tested, building up our faith so that when we're going through times of difficulty, we're not going to fall away. God does the strengthening of our faith, but there are certain things we can do to prepare ourselves for those moments and see that that is what God is doing. But before we get into the physical and spiritual aspects of how we can prepare ourselves, there's a couple things you have to understand. Number one is what we just talked about. This mindset, developing this even-if mindset, takes a while. does not come quickly sometimes. Again, he's molding you every single day. If you don't have this mindset, no, it's okay. You will get to the point at some point in your life, if you remain faithful to God, you will see how faithful he has remained to you. And you will develop the even-if mindset, but you don't establish a relationship with Jesus and the next day have that even-if mindset. It takes walking through the valleys to the mountaintops to realize that. The second thing, and, and this is going to sound a little awkward, and I, I understand that, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, and let me explain when I hear this. When your faith is put to the fire, sometimes you get burned. Now, what I mean by that is this. I don't mean when God, God tests your faith specifically so he can hurt you. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you're going through times of difficulty and you're going through times when your faith is being tested, sometimes it hurts. I have some family friends. And I only got to know them better when I got to college because they lived on campus. And this family is one of the most godly families I've ever met in my life. But they have had their faith tested beyond, I think, what I can comprehend. We were the same age, my, uh, myself and their youngest son, and their youngest son was battling cancer at the time. And if you've ever seen someone battle cancer, it's horrific to watch, especially in a child. And so the mom, she, keeps, she writes a blog. Okay? And uh, if you want the name of it, I can give it to you, but... It's an amazing blog. She just makes things come alive. She's a beautiful writer anyway, and it's very easy to understand. She makes some things in Scripture come alive, and it's absolutely beautiful. But she kept a blog post, a blog series, while her child was going through chemo. And, of course, it still exists, and it may have existed before that too, but for sure, she made sure to post during her child's chemo treatments with a Bible study. She would post his progress with a Bible study, and do you know what book she was studying through that? Daniel. And I remember my mom and I sitting at the computer and we would read her posts and just bawl. Because, yes, it's sad, of course it's sad, but looking back and reading some of her posts the other day, the beauty of how she was viewing that ordeal and the, the level of faith she displayed while she was going through that instance, she never once questioned her faith in God. She never once questioned the existence of God. She never once questioned her relationship with Jesus. The only thing I can find in her post was constant statements of faith that no matter what, God had a plan. And they would trust that plan because he knows what's best. When their son was 13, he did pass away. And you would think it would be enough to just break a person down completely. I mean, you would think it would be enough to destroy someone. And the only thing I could find, and I looked hard through her blog post, 
was, I know my son is in heaven and I'll see him again. And even though my family's gone through this, I know our faith is strengthened and God has a plan for the other side. Of course she was upset. Absolutely she was. But she had reached that even if mindset. Constantly praying for the healing of her son. But understanding the entire time that God was in complete control and that he had a plan far better than she could have thought to herself. Anything she could have come up with on her own. The next thing, when you have your faith tested, when your faith is put to the fire, you will never experience anything with God in which you do not learn something and are not brought closer to him in the process. Like I said, it's not meaningless. When your faith is tested or you go through a difficult time, it's not because God just wants to have fun with you. Whether you can see it or not, and sometimes you don't find out till years down the road why it happened. When God is strengthening your faith, you never experience anything with God in which you don't come away learning something more about Him and about yourself. You also never return from an experience with God the same. If you have an experience with God, a true experience with God that is through prayer when He's speaking to you or you see Him come through in your life as He does, when you have an experience with God, if you come away from that experience the same way as when you were brought there, you didn't have an experience with God. You are always changed. You never are brought to an instance in which you do not learn something from God, both about Him and about yourself through that experience. And lastly, like I said, when it comes to strengthening the faith, God does the molding. God will do the stretching and the bending to form you into the image of your son. It's our job to walk with him daily and understand what it is he's doing. That he is working for our good, that he's working for the good of those who love him, and that he's good, he is working both for our benefit and for his glory through the entire process. God will do the shaping and the molding. It's our job to have the faith that he is working no matter what we can or cannot see. So how do we do it? What are, what are the physical or spiritual aspects we can do to prepare ourselves for our faith to be tested so that we can develop this even-if mindset of faith? Number one, you can take time every day to spend alone with God and His Word. That seems simple, but the worship we do in here is great. The worship, when we all come in, we have this attitude of wanting to serve and worship our God, it's great. But it is nothing compared to when you get alone with God with this book. When you get alone with God and allow, just comb through His Word, allow His Word to fill your life, you will experience things you probably not thought possible because the number one way God speaks to us is from His Word. And by the way, read some of the accounts. The Bible is full of accounts of people's faith being tested and them coming closer to God on the other side. Job is probably the best. But spend time every single day in this word. Maybe start your morning with it. And understand, I'm not asking that you sit there and you study it for an hour and a half. If that's what you want to do, then fantastic. Spend the first 30 minutes of your day when you have your coffee or when you have your breakfast. Read a little passage. Follow that with prayer. Communicate with God. God, I just read this, and it's good. What are you trying to teach me through it? 
And you will prepare yourself in seeing that God is just as active here as he is today. You will see how being in his word daily prepares yourself for the testing of your faith. Secondly, view each testing of your faith with an attitude that seeks to learn. Listen, I know I've harped on this, but I've harped on it because I've gotten a lot of questions about this. Well, I, you know, my mom has been dealing with this disease or, you know, my child has been dealing with this. It's, it's just meaningless. It's not. I can't tell you how many times in my life I looked at a situation I was going through and said, God, why is this happening to me? I'm in my word daily. I go to church. I'm, in, I'm as sincere in worship as I can. God, why is this happening to me? That type of attitude will drive you crazy and will make you cynical in your relationship with God. Because every ba- if you view every testing of your faith or every trial you go through in that way, then you're going to think, God's just out to get me. He's not. My grandmother told me this. I remember constantly being, I don't know why God is doing this to me. And she says, Justin, when you're going through a difficult time, don't go to God and say, God, why are you doing this to me? Go to God and say, God, what are you trying to teach me through this process? Like I said, you will never experience anything with God in which you don't come away changed or which you don't learn something. God is always trying to teach you something about Him and about His plan for your life. He's always trying to teach you something. But you have to view it, and believe me, it helps to view a situation as, okay, God, I know it's difficult, but what are you trying to teach me in this moment? Lastly, my final point is a Bible verse found in Romans 8.28, which says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things in your life, both good and bad, through the testing of your faith, through the valleys and the mountaintops, God is working for your good because he loves you. I mean, isn't it crazy? I mean, the creator of the universe knows you personally and loves you. It's flattering, really. God is always working for your good and for the good of those who love him. And so when your faith is put to the fire, when you're in the difficult times of life, if you don't have the mindset of the three men in Daniel yet, don't worry. It's coming. But when your faith is tested, draw near to God because he draws near to you. And know, God, what are you trying to teach me in this moment? He's not punishing you. He's not coming down on you. He loves you. He wants to form you into the image of his son. Ultimately, there's no, there's no one more faithful than God. Ultimately, that's displayed in his willingness to send his son to die for us so that the walls between us could be broken down so that we could have an intimate relationship with him. God doesn't test your faith because he doesn't like you. He tests your faith because even the wall has been broken down between his son broke down the walls of sin that separated us from him. Now let's walk closer. 
God says, I'm still here. As we come into this time of communion, I want us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid so that we could be close with him, so that we could experience his faithfulness. Would you keep that in mind as we enter this time? Thank you.